You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Our fifth lesson, and the last one as a preliminary to studying Redemptor Hominus, is to offer a few thoughts about John Paul II's legacy as the one who led the way through the confusions of the post-Vatican II era. Those 13 years between the end of the Second Vatican Council and the papacy of John Paul II were a time of much confusion. John Paul II's great achievement was to take the message of Vatican II, show how it is in continuity with the Catholic tradition, as Cardinal Ratzinger would later say, the hermeneutic of continuity. But it also opened up new horizons and a new set of challenges for the Church in the modern world. As Pope Benedict XVI said in practically all of his documents, and especially in his decisions and his behavior as pontiff, John Paul II accepted the fundamental petitions of the Second Vatican Council, thus becoming a qualified interpreter and coherent witness of it." End of quote. Redemptor Hominus will see how to interpret Vatican II, and Vatican II helps us interpret Redemptor Hominus. A qualified interpreter and coherent witness of Vatican II is so needed because Many who were not qualified have interpreted the Council incorrectly. And many of the confusions and abuses that came from prophets of a new church while neglecting its roots in the tradition have led to many confusions. Many of these abuses are too familiar, and I won't spend much time on it. You have the liturgy, which was obviously... There is a sense about the loss of the transcendent, and there was an undue emphasis upon the communal meal and the mixing of masses with other issues, political, social, and so on. There was the creation of canons and strange music. So perhaps it was not a surprise that mass attendance plummeted and penance was neglected. But the essential doctrines, the divinity of Christ and miracles, sacraments, the understanding of sin, the teaching on marriage, family, and birth control, all of these led to some confusion after the council. Even the role of priest and laity were becoming interchanged. Catholic politicians set out to lecture bishops about the true meaning of abortion or birth control, and Catholic education would emulate secular schools, taking Ivy League schools as a standard of excellence, catechetics abandoned memorization, and the teaching of doctrine for more effective results. That's probably a sufficient list to make the case that the post-Vatican II era was a time of confusion because of the incoherent witness to the faith in the modern world. 
Well, at the outset, we would say Vatican Council did not cause these events. In fact, when serving as the cardinal in charge of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, he said, it's a logical fallacy to argue post hoc ergo propter hoc, after this, therefore, because of this, there were more fundamental causes that led to the disarray. In the Ratzinger report, he mentioned, it was the unleashing within the church of latent polemical and centrifugal forces. And outside the church, a confrontation with the cultural revolution in the West, including individualistic, rationalistic, and hedonistic ideologies. That was in 1985. John Paul II sought to counter those trends and present that hermeneutic of continuity. For good reason, then, does Pope Benedict call him a coherent witness, perhaps even the qualified interpreter of Vatican II. I think Ralph McInerney's little book, What Went Wrong with Vatican II, or Vatican II, Renewal Within Tradition by Matthew Lamb and Matthew Levering are helpful. But that Ratzinger report is very important, and so were John Paul II's apostolic exhortation on Vatican II. The entire sweep of his pontificate shows the effort to recover and propel authentic renewal. And one could do no better than to work through these encyclical letters of John Paul II to understand the depth of the doctrinal issues that we must come to understand and live more authentically. This distorted interpretation of the meaning of Vatican II, I think John Paul II writes Redemptor Hominus to take that central point that Christ reveals man to man himself and makes our supreme calling clear. The intention of the council was not to change teaching, but to make the faith more accessible and better lived by the people. This is what John Paul does in the encyclical, is to deepen our awareness of the faith, explain the participation of the laity in the office of priest, prophet, and king, as distinct from the ministerial priesthood, to explain that pastoral compassion still requires the truth and cross, the cross, that the Eucharist is a meal, but also the one sacrifice of the Mass, that we must bring our lives and participate in as sharing in the priestly office of Christ to redeem and to sanctify the world to God. So I would say this participation in Vatican II by Carol Wotiwa gave him a firsthand knowledge of what the council intended and what its main message is. He did work on the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world. And I think if we see his strategy in coming to know the basics of Vatican II, it could be helpful. 
The four major documents are the dogmatic constitution on the church, on the sacred liturgy, and on revelation, with the fourth the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. I will share with you a chart that just helps one to see the dynamic interplay of these. I have constructed this chart by reading John Paul II, who said these documents have lost none of their timeliness. They are particularly relevant to the church in the current globalized society. As a matter of fact, in the exhortation to laity, he said, take up and read again and meditate and assimilate with understanding and love the rich and fruitful teaching of the council. So, the dogmatic constitution on the church emphasizes the church as mystery. It's not a sociological organization or a bureaucracy. It is a sacrament, a sign and instrument of the communion with God and of unity among all men. Christ as priest, prophet, and king is the head of the church. The ministerial priesthood and laity participate in different respects. It's the universal call to holiness, which is the greatest teaching of that document. On sacred liturgy declares the mystery of the Eucharist as the source and summit of Christian life and says the Eucharist perpetuates the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages. The conscious, devout, and active participation of the laity should be insofar as they offer themselves as a victim with Christ and consecrate the world to God. The document on divine revelation wants us to see scripture and tradition as a single deposit of faith, but to open sacred scripture even wider to the people of God. Church in the modern world analyzes the modern world in light of Christian anthropology. John Paul II often cited this text. Gaudium et Spes 22 and Gaudium et Spes 24 set the parameters of Redemptor Hominus. They are his touchstone teachings. So as Gaudium et Spes explores that anthropology, it then turns to discuss family, culture, economics, politics, and international affairs and invites the laity to see the world as the place for lay vocation. The bridge between the church and the modern world is lay apostolate. The decree on lay apostolate, in a way, is a key to them all. Because the church was founded to spread the kingdom of Christ over all the earth for the glory of the Father, to make all men partakers in the redemption and salvation and through them to establish the right relation of the entire world to Christ. Every activity of the mystical body with this in view goes by the name of apostolate and it's exercised through all of its members in various ways. Again, redemptor hominus is for apostolate. It gives the right focus and call to apostolate and behind that mandate to mission and the universal call to holiness, you see, is that 
Catholics more deeply live and know and love the sacred deposit of faith. The sacred council has set out to impart with more vigor to the Christian life of the faithful the sacred truth of faith. That's what John the 23rd, St. John the 23rd said about the council. To foster union among Christian believers and strengthen mankind and bring them into the church's fold. And Paul VI at the close of the council said, the council hands down to posterity the patrimony of her doctrine and precepts, the deposit entrusted to her by Christ himself. Her people have constantly reflected on this deposit through the centuries, have turned it into their own flesh and blood, as it were, by giving it expression in their way of life. The deposit of faith is illuminated in so many of its parts and arranged with its fullness and integrity. This living deposit of faith, constituted by the divine power of truth and grace, is capable of giving to everyone who receives it devoutly and by it nourishes its own life. So there again, John Paul II said, the enrichment of faith is the goal of Vatican II. Not to change truth or alter it or cut it back, but to embrace it in its fullness, to deepen it. So John Paul II's path for renewal was to first of all express his gratitude for Vatican II. He said Vatican II was the Spirit's gift to the Church. He emphasized the continuity with the past and that its central goal for the future was evangelization, making the deposit of faith more effectively taught and lived. In another encyclical, he says, the documents of Vatican II contain what the Spirit says to the churches with regard to the present phase of history. And finally, he says, many passages of this document indicate that the Council, by opening itself to the light of the Spirit of Truth, is seen to be the authentic depository of the predictions and promises made by Christ to the Apostles in his farewell discourse. It has prophetic significance. So at that synod celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Council, John Paul II said that the message has been welcomed with great accord and it remains the Magna Carta for the future. But again, it must be appropriated, understood, and lived by the people. So the second point of the strategy was to propose the apostolate of the laity as a key to understanding Vatican II and the Church in the modern world. He saw that as a priest. He saw that at the Council and emphasized it as Pope. He said it's a great moment in history, the new millennium. There's a new state of affairs in the world today. So there is an urgency for the action of the lay faithful, he says. If lack of commitment is always unacceptable, the present time renders it even more so. 
It's not permissible for anyone to remain idle. This apostolate derives from the universal call to holiness and the deeper understanding of the faith and a deeper participation in the sacramental life of the Church. A third point John Paul II made as a pastor was to stress the connection between the pastoral concern and truth. Pastoral compassion does not require a reduction of truth or a fudging of truth, but the contrary, a full devotion to the truth about God and man. The first encyclical Redeemer of Man makes this clear. The truth of man is understood only in the light of the Incarnation and the Passion of Christ. The secular world does not set the standard for us, but rather Christ as true God and true man reveals the true standard. In Veritatis Splendor, another later encyclical, he emphasizes the truth, and his reflections on Humani Vitae, he makes a strong connection between truth and a pastoral approach which should not downplay or deny the moral norms for human sexuality. And he says it's really not true to say the Catholic teaching does not take into account the difficulties of concrete life. Pastoral concern is a search for the true good of man and the promotion of authentic values. So we must observe, he said, a rule of understanding to discover God's plan for human love because it's in the certitude of the true good of the human person that we find fulfillment. Theology of the body was a tremendous development for showing the truth of Humani Vitae and liberating the healing power of Catholic doctrine. Fourth, I would say, he brought back to the Church a clarity and certainty about its essential doctrines. The Catechism of the Catholic Church stands there now to remind us that we can't cut out truths at our own whim or will. From the creed, sacraments, morality, and prayer, stated in a systematic fashion, and his letter on catechetics restored respect for integrity of doctrine and standard methods of learning. He says, the person who becomes a disciple of Christ has the right to receive the word of faith not mutilated, falsified, or diminished, but whole and entire, and it's all its rigor and vigor. That's a direct quote from his letter on catechesis. So, he said, no catechist should lawfully on his own initiative make a selection of what he considers important in the deposit of faith. Again, so our focus should be on Christ, and the rest radiates out from there. The fifth thing I would mention is his concern for education. All of these track those concerns he had as priest. Ex Cordia Ecclesia is the Magna Carta for Catholic Education, the Catholic University, through recognizing the bishop and the importance of truth at the center of our educational effort. Fidelity to the word should stimulate our search for truth and not deny it or limit it. We must confront the rationalism of modern culture, but also fideism, 
And that's again why he chooses Thomas Aquinas as the common doctor of the church who will bring us to a greater renewal called for by Vatican II. As the lay faithful appropriate the faith and come to a deeper understanding for it. Now, as he was bishop, Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow, he wrote a book called Sources of Renewal, in which he says the faith, the council will be implemented if it's based on the principle of enrichment to faith. And so he wrote the book as a plan of action to concentrate on the consciousness of Christians and the attitudes they acquire. Wotiwa said enrichment does not mean adding explicit formulations of truth, but receiving and realizing faith more richly in our lived experience. That is what the teacher should be do, to emphasize the existential and moral aspect of a mature faith. Now this idea of raising consciousness or enriching faith is again one of the purposes of Redemptor hominis. It's not like the 60s New Age or secular enlightenment, but it is Lexio Divina, a prayerful meditation on the truth of faith. And it's through this faith-based interiority of lay people, their contemplative spirit, as he found in John of the Cross, a deep subjectivity oriented towards God and the pursuit of God will be what brings about renewal of the church and renewal of society. Culture is basically oriented not to human products, but the enrichment of the human person. And that's where faith should deepen our interiority and contemplation. When the contemplative spirit is missing, he said, life is not protected. So that is really how to approach Redemptor Hominus, is to see it as part of the renewal of Vatican II by enriching the faith, deepening our consciousness. So when he wrote Crossing the Threshold of Hope, he said, I, I proclaimed, be not afraid when I became Pope. And he said, I didn't realize how that would take me and the church throughout this period. It was the Holy Spirit who, he said, led him to utter those words. Be not afraid, he said, was based upon the church in the modern world. In the East as well as in the West, in the North and the South, do not be afraid of what you have created and what you have produced. Have no fear of yourselves. This is Redemptor Hominus. Why? because God has redeemed man. He said, I already knew on my first day as Pope I would write this encyclical, because in the redemption we find the most profound basis for the words, be not afraid. God gave his only son to redeem us and is present throughout human history. And Christ prepares us for the eschatological future. Christ is a light in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. His cross and resurrection are greater than any evil in the world. 
This faith is definitive and all-embracing. It is empowering and transformative. It is a source of both peace and energy. So again, that is why, now as we turn to Redemptor Hominus, we should see how much is brought up into this encyclical by Pope John Paul II, who brought his entire life's experience as a Polish poet and philosopher, priest and bishop and cardinal, to the chair of Peter. And then in that compressed form in Redemptor Hominus, see, you will find a blueprint, really. As he said, those fundamental calls to the intellect and will that should sustain the Christian people in their journey. And that is, I think, the main reason I wanted to preface this reading with our consideration of the roots of the encyclical. John Paul II's favorite passages from Gaudium et Spes would be this, the dual teaching that man is a mystery and can only be understood in the light of the mystery of Christ, and man is the only creature created by God for his own sake. And we find ourselves through a sincere gift of ourself. That is a compression of the teaching that he takes from Gaudium et Spes. I think these two passages, Pope John Paul II will say, are his greatest debt to Vatican II. Here's a quote from him. It's precisely my intimate knowledge of the origin of Gaudium et Spes that has enabled me to appreciate its prophetic value and to make wide use of its content in my magisterium, starting with my first encyclical, Redemptor Hominus. So as a way into the thought of John Paul II, I would say we should First, open Gaudium et Spes. If you have that document, you should look at these. If you don't have the document, go get it. And read section 22 and 24 of Gaudium et Spes and see how that theme provides the backbone for his reflections on the crisis of our time and the true Christian response. It is the touchstone which he often copies out and refers to frequently. And here it is. I'll read it to you. Only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Christ fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. That's Gaudium et Spes 22. And here is 24. This likeness reveals that man who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. End of quote. Those two quotes are so rich, but they contain the message of Christian faith pertaining to the dignity and destiny of the person, the primacy of faith as a response to God's love and revelation, 
and when he later will proclaim that now is a time of mercy, that goes back to those. And even the devotion to Mary as the mother of the church is from Gaudium et Spes. And the full appreciation that Christ reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Because in that document, that passage, we will also read the following, that Christ, who was true God and true man, worked with human hands, loved with a human heart, was in a human family, had a human mother. All of these are what lead us to turn to Christ to see the meaning of what it is to be human. And that will be what the theologians will call the theological anthropology. But I think you'll also see it as this lived experience of the Christian who in prayer is united to Christ just as Christ is, has united himself to all men so that if we respond in our baptism through faith, in faith to Christ, we will learn these lessons about the meaning of love, the nature of service, and most of all, why we should not be afraid, why we should be confident in opening the doors of culture and politics, family and globalization and economics, that all should be open to Christ. And as you will see in our next session, the very opening of the encyclical is this statement, that Jesus Christ is the center of history and the center of the universe. And so we must turn our minds and hearts to contemplate Christ and see how the Supreme Pontiff John Paul II, St. John Paul II, leads us in a profound meditation upon the significance of the Incarnation, the passion and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.